morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, or for those of us who are joining online and you don't know me, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's, and I'll be preaching the word uh, for, as you read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Before we begin, uh, let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, reveal to us our hidden faults. Reveal to us our presumptuous sins. Help us to see today our sins the way that you see them. Wake us, O oh Father, from the danger that we have lulled ourselves into by seeking to rationalize our sins. And help us to know the blessedness of one whose transgressions are forgiven in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So as uh, the Dean mentioned, uh, we are looking at 2 Samuel. We began 2 Samuel actually last year, and we'll be continuing this series uh, in the book of 2 Samuel from chapter 11 all the way to Advent, and we'll finish the book, God willing, uh, by then. Now, when we last left off uh, David in chapter 10, we, we, we saw how from the beginning of the book, the reign of King David, that David was God's chosen king, that he conquered enemies, that he feared God, both in public as well as in private that he was righteous in all that he did, and God was with him. In chapter 10, we see that he defeated uh, the, the enemies of Israel, of Ammon and Syria. So Ammon and Syria, both to the south of Israel and to the north of Israel, had an alliance against them, and, and David defeated them both. The Syrians to the north ran away, and the Ammonites to the south retreated to the capital city of Rabbah. And that's what we'll see later. Now, this is a setting of our story. The siege of Rabbah begins in chapter 11 all the way to the end of chapter 12. We'll see that next week. But the events of this passage sets the course, changes the course for the history of Israel. Spoiler alert, it changes it for the worse. Much, much worse. It's tragic when heroes of the faith fall into sin. The fallout is always so much worse because the pedestal was put that much higher. One significant example I'll be drawing from, uh, not just now but throughout this message, would be of that of recent, um, the recent scandal, still recent, still fairly recent, of world-renowned apologist Ravi Zacharias. Now, most of us uh, in the past few decades, if you grew up a Christian in the 90s or the early 2000s, Ravi Zacharias was a giant in the apologetic world, the defense of the faith, of Christianity. A lot of people that I personally know came to faith because of him or remained a Christian because of his ministry. He headed the largest uh, global apologetic organization, RZIM, based on his name. And he is credited often for putting apologetics in the mainstream. A lot of the, of the people, if you go to YouTube and search about people to defend the faith, they will credit their start with Ravi's ministry. But unbeknownst to everyone, all, all his staff, all his families, the ones closest to him, Ravi was living a secret life as a sec sexual predator. And all this came to light months after his death in 2020. Now, when the scandal first hit, many people, myself included, could not reconcile this man that we respected with the man that the, the subsequent investigations revealed to in irrefutable evidence that he was manipulative and spiritually abusive and, and sexually uh, deviant. How could this be? How could these two people be the same man, we wondered? Likewise, when we read our passage today, 
It's difficult to reconcile the David that we've read of, the, the, the young shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath, who trusted in God with the man that we will read here. How can God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart, do this? So we'll be looking at this passage describing David's sin against Bathsheba. And my main point for us, I hope that we'll learn today, is that sin pretends to be harmless, but it has fatal consequences. Now what's sin? The main point of this, this whole passage is highlighting about the dangers of sin. Sin, simply defined, is the corrupting darkness that's the natural result when one turns away from God. Sin is not empty God as if it's very powerful, a powerful entity. No, sin is a void. It's an emptiness. And it's what naturally you will find when you turn away from God. If God is light, if God is love, if God is goodness, sin is the natural consequence when one turns away from God. So that'll be, hopefully that'll be helpful for us uh, as we look through this passage. Now, uh, if you can, as uh, the dean mentioned, uh, can you have your Bibles open to uh, verse 1? This will not be in your service order because we only read excerpts of it. So if I encourage, and can I encourage you, please have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 11 and we'll be reading through the whole thing. I won't be reading every verse, that'll be too long, but yes. Let's look at verse 1. <coughs> so our record begins at the continuation of the previous battle, the siege of Rabbah, as I mentioned just now. When the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, all Israel. They ravished the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, <coughs> as I mentioned, the, 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 the battle of Rabbah, in eventually is, is conquering, will be all the way in the end of chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 26. There'll be a total defeat of that city. Okay, that's going to come. But David remains behind. Why? Why did David remain in Jerusalem? Possibly he's tired of fighting and killing. Maybe he thought, I have so many wins under my belt, I deserve a bit of rest, isn't it? But of course, we're not told why. And I don't think it's important in the sense because no matter what the reason is, he, we can see that the compromise begins here. Why? Because David's remaining safely in the city when he should be at the front lines. In the last chapter, he was there. He was there at the front lines attacking the Ammonites but not so here. Now, how can I be so sure? Maybe, you know, as a king, he has duties in the headquarters in the capital city, right? If you look at chapter two, uh, 12, verse 26, in the next chapter, Joab, at the end of the battle, Joab's been fighting the battle on David's behalf, right? What, what does Joab tell David? David, okay, I'm going to paraphrase here, okay? So forgive me in my paraphrase. David, get your butt down here. If you don't come here immediately, I'm going to conquer the city and it's going to be named after me. Joab obviously expects David to be there, but he's not, okay? Um, so David remains at the city. Now let's look at verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. Now, a lot of things are packed in verse two, okay? First is that it's not late afternoon. Literally, it's actually sunset. It's not like two, three o'clock, no. It's sunset, it's evening, it's five, six o'clock. What does that mean? David, Partied so hard the night before that he's waking up at 5 or 6 p.m. in the evening. Not on his bed, but from his couch. He just woke up from whenever he last passed out when he was drunk and he woke up and it was 5, 6 p.m. and he's strolling on his roof. 
And from his roof, uh, from the roof, we continue in verse two. He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. Now I'll put a pause there, and I need to clarify um, five things real quick. Because historically, how has this been depicted? We have um, pictures as old as the Reformation itself, showing pictures of Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, naked, seducing David from the palace. So I need to clarify five things real quick. Number one, Bathsheba's not on the roof. David's on the roof. Okay? Number two, Jerusalem is a city on a mountain. Okay, it's on a slope. And David's palace is on the highest point of that mountain with the city spread out before him. Okay? So he can really see the entire city before him. That's how uh, it's set up. Now, of course, later on, the temple will be built higher than him, but at this point, the temple's not built. The third thing is that Bathsheba bathing has no warrant to imply anything indecent or that she's naked. Why? Because there was no indoor plumbing during that time. There's no showers in the house. In fact, it's troublesome to carry a huge amount of water one bathes with into the house okay, and bathe from there. Bathing was done outside in public at rivers or at baths. So she likely wasn't naked. She likely wasn't indecent. Okay? The fourth thing is that the word bathing is the same word used for ritual cleansing. Now, this is part of Torah, uh, the, the Jewish law, that when one is unclean, one needs to go and bathe in running water in the river. Okay? They don't do that naked. They do that fully clothed, but you, you, you immerse yourself in the river and you're clean. And, and we will find out later that Bathsheba was at a time of ritual cleansing. So likely, again, we can't be sure, but likely this was done at the Kidron Valley, the river right below the mountain of Jerusalem, which is also in view of the palace. It's right next to the palace, actually. Number five, that she was beautiful, or some older versions would say she was good to look at. Okay? Doesn't imply that she was naked, because when we see in the other parts of the Old Testament, this same phrase right, was used to describe matriarch Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was beautiful. Uh, it was used to describe uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, when she was at the well in public. And it's also used to describe Esther. There's nothing to imply that Bathsheba was naked or that she was seducing David here. So David sees a beautiful woman. That's all we can conclude about this narrative. And verse 3, he sends and inquires about her. Now at this point, this is another red flag. You see, we even know earlier from 2 Samuel, David already has wives, more than one. David has concubines, other women that he can sleep with. What is he doing looking at a beautiful woman and asking about her. That's the second, that's the next red flag, right? Staying back is one. Asking about this woman is a second. And he receives a reply. She's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. Now, it's not common to introduce women this way in the Old Testament, by the way. So there's something special about these two names. Where are they? You can look ahead to 2 Samuel 23, where both these names are mentioned. The first, Eliam, uh, son of Athiopel. Athiopel is a king's counselor. You'll see him later on in the story with Absalom that he advises the king. So he's the, she's the granddaughter of the king's advisor. That's the one. Number two, Eliam and Uriah, they're both captains. They're, they're the whole chapter of 23 of uh, 2 Samuel is about David's uh, mighty men, his captains. He's one of David's 30. They were organized in groups of three and 30. Okay? Together with Joab's brother Asahel, they were like an elite crack group, like a SEAL Team 6 uh, of their mighty exploits. You can read that in 2 Samuel 23. So, knowing that, how shall we look this? David asks about this woman and he receives a reply. David, she's the wife of your captain's 
Uh, she, she's the daughter of your captain, Iliam, granddaughter of your advisor, Ethiopel, wife of your other captain, the same team, Uriah. You know these men. That's the implication. But of course, David ignores that. In verse 4, he, he takes her, she comes to him, and he lay with her. And here's where we, we get the idea that she's not, she's in a time of ritual cleansing. She had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. What does this tell us? This tells us two things. You see, what, 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 what was she cleansing herself from? Uh, women and their monthly menstruation is a period of, of uncleanness that they have to purify them, themselves from. You can read this from Leviticus chapter 15. Okay? So she was having her monthly period, and then after, she waited a period of seven days, and then she went to clean herself. What does this tell us? It tells us two things. The first, there is no way any baby conceived from that point on is her husband's because he's away on campaign fighting when she has her period. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, after waiting seven days, you know, it puts her likely, possibly, in, a, in an ovulation window where she's fer- uh, she can conceive. And of course, in verse 5, she conceives. She gets pregnant, she comes with baby, and she tells David. Now, we're going to continue that on, but first, it leads us to our first principle, that sin begins with harmless compromises. Now, whenever we look at a big scandal like Ravi Zacharias, we ask, where did it begin? You see, it's, it's very hard to tell an exact starting point because they are, uh, it's the result of many, many tiny compromises. For Ravi, maybe it began with uh, the need for a massage, which began to open the door for massages of a different kind that's not, you know, uh, that, that's more shameful and begin to feed lust to, to the point where uh, he began to devise ways in which no one can know what he's doing, to have no oversight with the people around him and no accountability of having a second, a third phone that he can hide this second lifestyle and being surrounded by people who blindly believed him. They'll allow it to go for far too long. Started with compromise. For David, like I said, staying in the city, living the good life of good food, good wine, those things are not bad. But when he's indulging himself, feasting when he should be at battle, ignoring his duties, that was wrong. And the next compromise was when he doesn't inhibit his lust, when he treats women as objects. You see, the whole passage, David doesn't ever refer to her by name. He only refers to her as the woman, the woman, the woman. The author using that perspective to see the woman was pregnant. She conceived. The woman, you know, uh, from David's perspective, she's just the woman. He sees her as an object, not as a daughter of God who bears his image. Sin pretends to be harmless, but it has fatal consequences. And for us, it could be any of us saying, just one glance, no one would know. Maybe just one transaction, just one deal, and I'll cover it up. Could be also be saying, just one night of pleasure, no one will know. I'll treat it as if it never happened and it doesn't have to affect the rest of my life. We go back to our New Testament reading in James 1. and says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Friends, sin pretends to be harmless and, and we choose it. We can't blame God for our sins because we chose it. It's from our desires. But as we'll see next, we do not get to choose the consequences of our sin, as you'll see next. So, of course, we, uh, Bathsheba becomes with child, and we see David's response in verse 6. 
Instead of dealing with the Sheba, David goes to Joab. Send me Uriah. So Uriah comes, and David puts on the show of asking how he's doing. Asking, uh, literally, it's asking the shalom of Joab, the shalom of the army, the shalom of the war. Shalom means peace, means wholeness, the, the condition. How is it well? But David's heart is not well, isn't it? And, and David, only David, note, note here, only David is recorded as talking. Of course, Uriah spoke. But, but the author is doing this to show us that David, from maybe from the perspective of David, he doesn't care what Uriah has to say. So presumably they talk in verse 6 uh, and verse 7 and then verse 8. So David says to Uriah at the end of their, their nice chat, have a good chat. And he says, okay, Uriah, thank you for your report. Uh, go back home to your wife. Uh, so Uriah went down. Go, to your, go home, wash yourself, wash your feet. Uh, and Uriah went and David sent a present. Presumably this is food from the king's table. So David was like very, very, very like subtle here. What's going to happen? You go home to a lovely wife who misses you. Wash yourself up, clean yourself up, and, and, and you have great food and wine from the king's table. Of course you share it together. A night of supper, a nice environment, maybe with a bit of like berry white, I don't know. <laughs> That's what David was picturing, isn't it? Then Uriah will sleep with his wife, and then, oh, she's pregnant. Oh, my surprise. Congratulations, Uriah. The deed is done. That's David's mind, isn't it? You see, David just wanted a night of passion. He just wanted one night of passion. He didn't care about Bathsheba. He didn't want Bathsheba to marry her, no. Instead, he got a child out of wedlock with the wife of one of his captains. And of course, he tries to cover up and it doesn't work. So summarizing what happens next, Uriah doesn't go. Okay, and, and, and David asked, why? Why didn't you go? And here we have Uriah explaining himself. Why does Uriah refuse? He says, the ark of God is in the tent. Likely, when Israel and Joab brought the, the armies to fight, he brought the ark with him. They're staying in tents. Uh, Joab and his armies are staying in tents. How can I go back and eat, drink, and lie with my wife? The irony here is that that's exactly what David did. He ate, he drank, he lay with Bathsheba. And, and okay, what's going on here? Um, one hand, possibly, Uriah heard caught gossip. Possibly, but another possibility is that Uriah just is, uh, he has his integrity. Why? Because there's such a thing as uh, ritual purity while you're on military campaign. Uh, earlier in, in the law, it says that if you're encamped against your enemy, you should keep, the army should keep themselves clean. Now, sex is a gift, but it's one of the things which makes one ritually impure. So while on campaign, it's a very strict thing that, that God's people are meant to abstain from sex. So Uriah takes this very seriously. You see, Uriah the Hittite. The Hittite is a non-Israelite nation. He's not Israelite. But here, this foreigner, his faith in Yahweh puts God's king to shame. So David tries again in verse 12. He tries again, and this time he tries harder. He, he brings Uriah on to eat and drink and gets him drunk. And this says more to us about David than really about Uriah because David's thinking the good food and strong drink will, will erode his morals like it did mine. You see, see where, the, where the sinful mind goes? But again, it doesn't work. Uriah gets so drunk but he refuses to go. He stays in, his, in the servant's palace uh, where the palace servants stay and he stays there. It didn't work. So, it leads us to our next principle. Sin will always be revealed. 
David's cover-up failed spectacularly. All attempts to cover up sin will fail. One day, sin will clearly be revealed, either in this life or the next. For in the case of Ravi Zacharias, it was revealed after his death. Maybe we can see, oh, he got away with it, right? He died and, and everyone cried and lamented over the death of a great man. And he went in peace, so we thought. Did he really get away? No. Because Ravi, right now, he's facing his creator and maker who knows every single thing he did. Ravi Zacharias did not get off. If we are thinking, if we can fool ourselves that no one knows what we're hiding, the one person we can't hide from is God. Sin pretends to be harmless, but it has fatal consequences. Friends, you see, up to this point, David does everything. He tries everything except the one thing he should do, which is confess and repent. You see, when David was caught in the act, he was only trying to manage the problem. He was sorry he got caught, and he was trying to, to, to cover up, to avoid the consequences, and it only made things worse. I think things really would have been much different if he had just come clean about it and said, I, I made a mistake in a night of passion, and, and this happened and face the consequences, the backlash from Uriah, from the public, whatever it is. But David, in the thick of his sin, dug himself deeper. The part of it is that you think it's harmless, you think, I've got it, I can manage it, but it's not true. It's out of control. And we'll see what's next, the deadly consequences that follows. Things go out of David's control. So David, what does he do next? He doubles down again. He sends Uriah with a letter carrying his own death warrant, Uriah's death warrant. He sends him back to, to, to Joab and tells Joab, put Uriah at the fighting and then pull back, leaving him alone. See, Joab, Joab's a general. He's not, he's not a fool. He knows that if he does this, it will either not work because of camaraderie. Repeat, retreat, retreat. They'll retreat together and Uriah will be safe as well. Or he tells everyone to, you know, retreat without Uriah. Don't tell him. What would that do for morale? What would that do for a soldier at the front line? Would I be next that Joab would, you know, secretly tell people to retreat because I didn't like him, <laughs> right? No, it would kill morale. So what does Joab do? He, he, he does obey, bring him to the fighting, and he allows the fighting to continue to the time that Uriah dies. But you see here in verse 17. So when the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite died. So yes, Uriah the Hittite dies, but he does not die alone. David's attempt to cover up costs the lives of faithful men in a reckless strategy that should never have been done to begin with. So, of course, Joab has to report that the deed has been done. He knows that this has caused collateral damage, other people's deaths. Maybe Joab thought, maybe David may be angry at the messenger, so he tells the messenger what to say. When David gets angry, how can you be so foolish? Tell David that Uriah, your servant, has also died. But what do we see? The messenger goes. He tells the message to David that they were shot at by archers and, 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 and many people died, including Uriah. David doesn't get angry. You see, David is so far gone in his sin that he doesn't react to the fact that other men that he never intended to kill were dead as well. He's just relieved that Uriah is dead as well. So David tells Joab through the messenger, don't let this displease you. 
Literally, it says, uh, it, it, it translates to, don't let this be evil in your eyes. Possibly, David is telling this to Joab. I asked you to kill someone, a good captain. Don't, please don't think evil of me. Or he's telling himself, don't let this displease you. Now we read in verse 26, and the, another consequence. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, died, she lamented over her husband. Again, here, the, the, the literal word is that she wailed. Not that she said, oh, sad. No, she wailed. It's the same word used when Abraham lamented over his wife, Sarah. It's the same word used when Joseph lamented over his father's death, Jacob. It's the same word used when Israel, all Israel, lamented the death of the prophet Samuel. She loved Uriah. I think it's clear from this verse. And he died. And we read on in verse 27. So when one mourns, uh, there's a traditional period of mourning. Uh, we're not sure uh, which, which she took. It could be think anything from seven days as it was for Jacob to 30 days as it was in the case of Moses and Aaron's deaths. That people grieved for 30 days. But whatever the case, there will be a time for which the, the ritual mourning will end. And this is when David sent, brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Now there's nothing untoward about this because let's just, just describe how this looks from the outside, okay? David is such a generous king who cares so much about his captains, the welfare of his captains, that he would take the widow of his captain's wife into his house to care for her as one of his own wives to ensure that she's well taken for. And that this generous act was blessed by God because this brought forth a son. Wow! So far from being shamed, David was really honored. He looked really good after this, you know? But all is not well. But before we get to that, we have a third principle. That sin decides its own consequences. David thought getting rid of Uriah, uh, only Uriah, right? It's bad enough that he wanted to commit murder, that's one. But the, the second thing is that he implicated Joab, not only his general in his cover-up, but also the death of faithful men. We chose the sin. We choose the sin. We don't get to choose the consequences that we'll have to face. Sin pretends to be harmless, but it has fatal consequences. Now, there's a quote here I'd like to share to you. Ironically, it's from Ravi Zacharias himself. He says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. See, we don't get to avoid the consequences of our sin. Not forever. Even after we repent, we have to face the consequences. We'll see next week, David does repent, but the consequences of this one chapter remain. But let's move on to the, the last part of, 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 of our passage. To what does God see of this? The last bit of verse 27, just one bit, one tiny footnote at the end of this long chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, of course, this is a foreshadowing of what comes next, right? But God has thus far been silent and absent throughout this whole narrative. What was God doing? Why was God silent? Why didn't he stop his faithful servant? My take, possibly, is that up to this point, David had a chance to repent, come clean. But when we look at verse 26, 27, that David, in fact, covered up successfully and he's honored for it, he has passed the point of no return. There is no way past this point that David will ever come back on his own. 
He's past the point of no return and therefore God steps in. And that's what we see in chapter 12. God steps in and confronts David. And this is actually mercy, isn't it? Okay? But that we, we'll see that in next week. Okay. So this leads us to our last principle, and that is sin incurs God's wrath. If God looked at what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah and didn't get angry, if you don't feel angry, right, there's something wrong. That God isn't good if he doesn't get angry at sin. All of us, friends, myself included, we have sinned. We have incurred God's wrath. And the, the, the disaster and the corruption that we see in sin in this chapter is meant to apply to all of us as well in our own failings and our own sin. We all need to be saved from sin. We are in sin naturally, that we, are, we have naturally turned away from God. We are in the consequence of being turned away from God, away from Him. And if we die in this state, the consequences are eternal. We need a Savior to save us from our sin. Even David needed a Savior to be saved from his sin. And that's why God sent a Savior. God was kind to David, not because David was awesome, but because through David, he was sent a greater son of David, Jesus Christ, to die the death of the sinner, die our death, to bear that full weight of our shame and our consequences of sin, his wrath on the cross. That's what Jesus did. And all we have to do is to believe in him, Believe that he died for us to receive forgiveness from God, to be reconciled to God. So we should do what David should have done and repent. Friends, sin pretends to be harmless, but it has a fatal consequence. So two final thoughts and I'll close. The first is that everyone potentially can fall. How should we respond to a scandal like Ravi Zacharias? Unfortunately, he is not a singular incident. Day by day in the news, we see of Christian leaders who fall. To understand that everyone can fall, everyone has the potential to fall. We should not go on one side and say, I would never do that. How could he or she, right? We should recognize that we have the same, ten the same tendencies that existed in someone like Ravi Zacharias exist in us as well. So there's four things here. The first, never put anyone on a pedestal. Never put them so, so much so that your faith depends on them. No one. Including the pastoral team of St. Mary's. All of us, we will admit, don't put us on the pedestal. Don't you dare. Because there's only one person that deserves, that's sinless and that's perfect and that's Christ. Look to him. Base your faith solely on him. Don't look to us. Second, knowing that even your leaders are vulnerable, pray for us. Pray for your leaders who serve you. We need your prayers. Because we're not, we were fighting a battle and we don't want to fight alone. The third thing is when we look out there and we see faithful Christian leaders, we thank God for them because that's the exception, not the norm. Lastly, the fourth thing, we show grace and mercy that we hope would be shown to us if we were in that place. Recognize that we have the potential to fall as well. We show them grace and mercy by pointing them back to Christ. Second thing, last reflection before we end. This is just for you. If at this point you're thinking of maybe someone who needs to repent or someone who's wronged you, that's all and good. But right now, I want you to think of just for you. Receive this word just for you, right? You are in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. Please, please stop. 
If you're currently doing things online that you know you shouldn't be doing, please stop. If you are getting financial gain through means that you will not broadly declare, please stop. If you're doing something, anything, a behavior, a lifestyle that you're ashamed of, that you know it's wrong, and that you hope no one ever finds this out about you, I beg you, please stop. There is a point of no return that you'll be beyond repentance, beyond humanly possibly to, to repent and turn away and come back to God. If you think maybe you can get away with it in this life, I assure you, you will not get away with it in the next. Because God is a judge of justice and truth. On that day when Christ comes back, all will be revealed. The Bible tells us all that was hidden will be fully declared as in daylight. So I urge you, because of what Christ has already done, repent. Now, repent is more than just being sorry that you were caught, okay? It's, it's more than just uh, trying to make up for the mistakes that you just made. Repentance is about turning away from your sin, away from it, and turning to God. Now, of course, we'll see more about that next week. All right, so I do hope that you come. But I invite you right now, don't wait till next week. I invite you right now, repent before it's too late. Don't repent by doubling down, white-knuckling it. I will do by my own, my, my own faith, I will repent. Because your own strength has led you to a series of compromise to where you find yourself today. Doing it by yourself won't work. Please. The more serious the sin, the more this is true. Please repent by getting the help of a Christian that you trust, a more mature Christian that can point you to Christ and help you stay strong as you turn away from sin. I'm not going to lie, this, this won't be comfortable. This won't be easy. Dealing with sin never is. But I can promise you it will be worth it to deal with the consequences now rather than dealing with it when sin has full grown and unleashes its full devastation of death. But this is something you can only do by God's strength. So let's pray and approach him right now. Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you that you've given us Christ, the Savior from our sin. And we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And we thank you, Lord, that part of that mercy is not allowing us to get away, get off the hook when it comes to facing the consequences of our sin. So help us, O oh Father, to not just be resolute in dealing with our sin, but to also be helping us where we are weak. Help us, O oh Lord, to truly know that our sinful hearts will never find rest until they find their rest in you. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.